politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only CR Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house to cap off the week here on Friday, May 21st. And as always, we like to give a little bit of a retrospective look, taking in the events of the entire week, the lessons that we've gleaned. Um, I apologize, yesterday's show, many of you are probably catching up for some reason it didn't post uh, to iTunes. Um, by now, it should be up. But we, we, we talked a lot about crime and murderers being released. And, you know, I was thinking, today I want to talk more about foreign national illegal alien criminals or foreign national criminals. It's not enough. We have our own. We have to import them. But more broadly, I want to discuss the fact that we have no side we have no team on the field with a narrative where is it where are the republicans speaking to the times we live in and the point is when issues actually matter they never tell the story they never tell the stories of victims of crime victims of illegal immigration victims of covid fascism they don't tell it You look at the other side, you look at what they're doing this week in Congress trying to vote to create a 9-11 style commission on January 6th. When they feel they are aggrieved and they have a narrative of victimization, they will milk it to death. They'll lie about it. They'll milk it to death. We don't have a side speaking to legitimate victims and legitimate grievances of what the left has done to us on any given issue. Which leads me to where we are today. Every two years we hear this is the most important election of our lifetime. But really it doesn't matter. Tweedledee, Tweedledum, it's the same thing. But I will tell you, the upcoming primaries, about a year from now, in most states, those primaries are the most important election of our lifetime. Because the reason it is is because we've never gone through so many cathartic moments in this country as we have the last year, year and a half. And if that doesn't move us to at least elect a different crop of Republicans in large numbers in primaries and mainly state level, that's really what's important. And the most important are the governor's races, in addition to those local races like school board and county council and sheriff and prosecutor. If we don't do that, then quite literally, it will never matter. Then no election thereafterwards will matter at all. Because it means we'll keep repeating the same cycle again. Electing the same Republicans. I'm pro-life, I'm pro-gun, I'm for low taxes with no vision and plan to accomplish it and to work together, cross state lines, to create a true red America, a red, white, and blue America that somewhat represents our values. We don't have that. We don't have anyone with a narrative. You'll have here and there the people that you hear on the news all the time, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and people like that, that stand for us, 
There's very few of them. So by default, if you don't hear of them being that, they're not that, and you need someone else in a primary. Now, hopefully, if we have time, we'll have on, in a few moments, Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan challenging the sitting governor in Idaho for the governorship next year in the primary. It's going to be about a year from now. And we need that in about 10 to 15 other states. Imagine if you had 15 Ron DeSantis's as, as a baseline and they work together. That's when you could start having a new country. Again, it might not seem like a big idea I'm pitching you. Oh, the primary elections. So instead of general elections, the primaries. All right, Daniel, you spoke about that before. That's still working within the system. But this is all we have. You need to first maximize what you have in order to expand the realm of your universes to what we haven't had. You first need governors that are pedal to the metal that create a market for breaking off. People are like, Daniel, we need secession. And I say, look, I don't disagree, but secede from what? With what? We don't have anything to secede with. The red states are pretty much like the blue states. This is the problem. Now, one of the issues that they don't have a narrative on is crime. It's shocking. Name me the governors running on that. I certainly don't see it. And speaking of the devil, folks, not only do you need a gun and a holster, but I never thought I'd say this, but you need body armor. AR-500 armor has you covered. They have all sorts of um, ballistic body armor that really fits different grades. Some are for rifle rounds. Some are for uh, handgun rounds. I tried some out myself. They are very comfortable. As comfortable as you could really get for something that you need uh, to protect your life with. But but AR-500 has made shopping for body armor much easier. A lot of people don't know where to begin. A lot of different factors go into it. So you could go on their website, AR500Armor.com. They're very approachable. Affordable. You could buy everything online and have it shipped right to your home. They have multiple packages built for citizens just like you who are looking for varying levels of protection. And best of all, they put together some packages specifically for our listeners. Again, at AR500Armor.com slash Daniel. Okay, so AR500Armor.com slash Daniel. You could see their special promotions, pricing, that are running right now, you could use offer code Daniel for an extra 20% off anything else in the store, by the way. So again, plan right now to protect yourself and your family, your future with the body armor I trust from AR500 Armor, AR500Armor.com slash Daniel. Again, that's AR500.com slash Daniel, promo code Daniel for 20% off. Remember, folks, the best time to prepare was yesterday. The second best time is today. And that's what it is. It's, it's true politically. We fail to build a narrative on crime, on illegal immigration, on COVID fascism. Even now, do you hear a narrative on COVID fascism? No. And this is how we're at a point 
where the other side could have the most egregious things that, that should engender the creation of all sorts of commissions, and we don't even hear about it. And one of them, obviously, is crime. But like I said, what's worse than having our own domestic criminals is importing others from elsewhere in the world. We've basically become a garbage dump for the world's trash. When, you know, in a, in a world of over 7 billion people, there's a lot of great people that we could bring in. We have a system that brings in garbage. Not only garbage, but too much of it. 100% of immigrants should be amazing simply because you can't choose your natural-born citizens. You can choose your immigrants in an elective policy of immigration. So one big story going around is there might be a ceasefire between Israel and Gaza, but not on America's streets. You now literally have in L.A. and New York, I don't know if you saw some of those videos throwing incendiary devices, finding Jews wearing yarmulkes in the um, Diamond District of Manhattan, and they knew that they had, you know, that they worked there, and basically targeted them. This is what we have now, folks. This is what we have. Truly disgusting. Truly, truly disgusting. And um, people don't realize where this came from. This is, this is yet another sign that America has become just like Europe. Every time tensions flared up in the Middle East, Jews were attacked in Europe. Now we have that in America. We never used to have that. You know why we have that? Because we have now reached critical mass in terms of the number of refugees and immigrants we've brought in from the Middle East. So they bring their crappy mentality with them here. They're taught to attack Jews there. So they come here and they attack Jews. Of course, not a word from the president on this issue. Not a word. You know, for some reason, they accused Marjorie Taylor Greene of being an anti-Semite. Funny thing is, for an anti-Semite, she's the only one speaking out against the jihad here. Isn't that interesting? Truly disgusting. So now, in addition to rabid criminals, it's just open season. It's open season on Asians. It's open season on Jews. Who are the perpetrators? They appear to be mainly Arab immigrants together with some elements of BLM that mix together. That's what it appears is going on. That's a story we're going to want to cover in the coming days. Then there's illegal immigration. All the lovely people from Guatemala streaming across the border. So basically, we have had hundreds of thousands of teenage punks, the most violent people in the world from Guatemala and Honduras, coming across the border. We resettle them like refugees. And because they're juveniles, they commit crime after crime after crime, and we do nothing about it. The same leniency we have on juvenile criminals that we spoke about yesterday has been extended to illegal alien juveniles. There's nothing they can do to get removed. And then we know that most violent criminals are repeat offenders. So guess what? Those crimes are avoidable. 
But you could say, well, Daniel, you know, a certain amount, you know, we're not going to lock them up for too long, depending on what they did. But what if I told you we had a repeat offender from an illegal alien, foreign national, who even if you don't lock him up for long, the minute he's a criminal and he's here illegally, he should be removed. The first crime an illegal alien commits in this country, everyone, even if they're pro-illegal immigration in general, but if they commit a crime, I mean, everyone should agree that should be the last crime they commit. That is a goal that is fully achievable. By definition, any crime committed by an illegal alien, certainly the second, third time, is 100% preventable. With that background, let me read you a story I'm working on. In Florida, Martin County. Okay, this is a Trump plus 25 county north of Palm Beach. Show me that red America that we could escape to. Imagine being an 82-year-old American woman living alone as a senior. I don't think she had a husband. In a retirement kind of community in Florida. Living out your golden years. And government fails to do its number one basic job of protecting you not just from criminals, but from foreign national illegal alien criminals. Marvin Elon Mendoza, 20-year-old illegal alien from Guatemala, is accused of breaking into the woman's home at 3 a.m., tying her up, raping her for 45 minutes until he left. An illegal alien raped an 82-year-old American woman. In a sane world, this person would get his justice within 24 hours. But that's not even the main part of the story. He came in in 2016 as an unaccompanied minor. And there are many sex offenders among them, by the way. The, 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 the proclivity, it's mainly child, like the child molestation. This is a senior. But the proclivity for sex offenders among the Guatemalan population coming to this country is astounding. There's a story also in Florida for a couple of years ago I reported at the time from the Naples Times about tomato farmers that are mainly Mayan Indians living in, in uh, Immokalee, Collier County. They have major, major problems there. They had to get interpreters to deal with the criminal investigation because they don't even speak Spanish. He appeared for his arraignment on Wednesday in court. This Mendoza guy. Had to have interpreters. He's being charged with um, sexual assault and uh, burglary. Several other charges. He was wearing a mask, by the way, so maybe they'll let him go. But here's the deal. As a juvenile, so he comes here. Let's say, I, I mean, if you do the math, he was 15. Sometime... In between then, he's arrested for burglary and grand auto theft, I believe. Two separate occasions. Somehow, and this is under Trump, by the way. This is before the suspension of deportations. This was always a problem. I talked about it at the time. They were always lenient with juveniles. Juvenile illegals were rarely deported. 
But then, 2019, he's already an adult. He was arrested for basically walking around naked, doing, you know, stuff to himself, uh, you know, lewd and lascivious uh, uh, acts, whatever, uh, exposing himself in a park full of children. He was arrested and held in jail for 100 days. An adult, an illegal alien. Again, the two priors with burglary and theft. Somehow, he was not given over to ICE. Somehow, he was not given over. And now this 82-year-old woman was raped. And there are so many stories like this every day. Every year. ICE, when they were arresting, and just from the ones they caught, caught tens of thousands of illegal alien sex offenders. Needlessly remaining in this country, millions of them remain in this country indefinitely. Now, this sheriff, you know, it's a conservative county. He definitely turns them over. He's blaming ICE for it. I'm still trying to, I have a call into the sheriff's office an email response, and I'm waiting back on them you know, to get more details. But if I wanted to just cover these cases alone, I could, um, you know, I could spend all my days on this. That's how bad it is. And now, as we know, Removals have plummeted by 85%. How many more of these people are not not being removed? Imagine, see, criminals, as we've noted, it's so hard to convict them. You don't have to convict an illegal alien. You can just remove him. Every crime they commit, and this is a violent, primitive population, every crime they commit by definition is avoidable. Where's the narrative on this? Where the governor's running on this. The governor should issue an ultimatum saying if ICE doesn't take these people, we will fly them back to their home countries alone. Oh, Daniel, that's, you can't do that. It's against the law. Well, it's also against the law for the feds to not enforce immigration law. So what are the states supposed to do? Following statute in the Constitution is a two-way street. And again, you got to walk before you run, but this is where we need governors to aggressively push the narrative so the American people even know this is going on before we can actually push the solutions that need to be done. So this is where we are, but I want to get to our next guest. Now, folks, as an introduction to our next guest, I've been saying all year that the gubernatorial primaries are really the most important elections. If we haven't learned our lesson until now, This past year has taught us that governors are very, very impactful, really in many respects, more so than the president, whoever is in the White House. And that is how we are ultimately going to mold and shape and recreate a red America. Right now, our values are under assault in all 50 states. Name me a state where the values that are taught in our public schools are as patriotic as they are insane where I live in Maryland or New York or California. They might be a little bit better in the red states, but not that much better. Name me an area where 
you were able to live freely the past year. A little bit more in some states, but in most red states, not that much more. And I can go on and on with all these issues. We have 25 to 30 red states, but how many of them are true beacons where we could actually live out the American dream, live in accordance with the Constitution, live peacefully where government stays the heck out of our lives when we're acting peacefully, but clamps down very strongly on violent criminals, on illegal aliens, does their job. We don't really have that. And the reason we don't have that is because most of the Republican governors are literally Republicans in name only. One of those states is Idaho. Idaho is so important. People are looking to Idaho as a beacon of freedom. We just had a vote of five Oregon counties wanting to secede and join Idaho. But first, we have to make sure Idaho itself is being governed in accordance with constitutional values. Is that the case? Well, with us today is Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan, who has decided to throw her hat in the ring and actually challenge a sitting governor from her own party for the nomination next year for governor. We're going to find out why. Hey, Janice, thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning, Daniel. It's really wonderful to be with you this morning and uh, share with you what's happening in the great state of Idaho. Well, I wanted to see what's going on. And look, I love your state. As you well know, I've written a lot about Idaho. I'm looking to get out of Maryland and I would love to move to a place like Idaho. But, you know, I looked at this past year and you guys had a ban on gathering in more than you know, 10 people, literally the First Amendment, in place for longer than my blue state of Maryland did. What is going on, yeah. and is that why you are running for governor? Yeah, absolutely. Those are great questions to ask. Why is this? Why are we still in a state of emergency here in Red Idaho? Why were our businesses shut down last year? Why were our voting rights compromised? Why is our due process being taken away? Why were we allowed to go to the liquor store, but we couldn't go to church? All these things happened here in Idaho. Last year, our governor declared the the emergency and shut down our businesses and, and ordered healthy people to stay home and interfered with our right to worship freely. And and his decisions last year caused a lot of division and destruction. It, it was really hurtful for people and businesses to be deemed not essential, which in my view, every life is essential and every business, every job is essential. And so this division, was it was destructive. It led to widespread unemployment. It created a lot of anger, which is a, a deep a response to deep hurt. And here in Idaho, we've seen increases in depression and suicide rates as, as across the nation. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why even today are we still in the state of emergency here in Idaho? Now, many of the restrictions have been lifted but the governor is still keeping us in this emergency order so that he can continue to exercise his power over things, including how to spend this money and dictating policy. And that is not 
the way our Constitution was drafted. Our Constitution is written, both the U.S. Constitution and the Idaho Constitution, to have the proper balance of power between the three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. And by keeping us in this emergency, the governor continues to exercise his domain and his control over the areas that rightfully belong to the legislature. And just last week, we, we just came off the longest legislative, legislative session in Idaho history where the legislature made attempt after attempt to constrain some of these powers of the governor. And uh, But we did get fit, wrapped up last week. I, was the, I am the president of the Senate as the lieutenant governor. And um, as soon as we got done with the session, I was ready to announce my candidacy to run for governor because I cannot just, I cannot sit back and watch all this happen and not be willing to stand forward and, and do something about it. You know, and I, I've watched throughout the country in these red states where Republicans, like in Idaho, have three to one, sometimes four to one majorities in the legislature. And yet still we can't get common sense ideas passed, even after a year of just egregious uh, power grabs by governors built on faulty science, faulty uh, legal justification. And still, you know, we couldn't get a bill passed in Idaho, uh, passed both chambers on vaccine freedom when they're now forcing it. We couldn't get a bill to permanently uh, bar them from regulating human breathing with the mass mandates. Uh, we have very minor tweaks to emergency powers relative to the power conservatives should enjoy in that state. Um, a lot of people have told me over the years that it's kind of a fool's errand to try to change the legislature if you don't have a governor from the same party swimming in the same direction, that not enough of them are willing to buck a governor from the same party. Do you expect that were you to win the nomination and then obviously likely be favored in the general election, become governor, that the legislature would also become more conservative? Well, I believe that it is the governor's role to stand in defense of our state sovereignty and and lead and to lead out on some of these issues and I have not seen that type of leadership coming from my state like I've seen in some other states like South Dakota and Florida it's the governor's job as the CEO of the state to lead out on these issues and and that's one of the pinnacles of my campaign I'm there's three pillars of my campaign that I'm running on. One is to protect our individual liberties that we all value so much, uh, to protect our state sovereignty because in our constitution, the states are equal to the federal government. That's the way our founding fathers designed our form of government. And then thirdly, to lead out on protecting our traditional conservative values that have stood the test of time and what make Idaho such a great state. And so, yes, I, uh, when we're successful in, in this effort, that will be my primary goal to lead out on in those three areas, especially considering that we have such a, a leftist, radical controlled um, Congress and, and administration 
it's the it's so critical that the governors of of the independent states stand up against this this overreach of the federal government and the way the feds try to entice us to comply with their laws, which we won't here in Idaho, is they try to they bribe us into compliance and just say, if you want to just take this money here and do it our way, their laws. There's a Supreme Court case that says that it is not that the states are not compelled to enforce federal laws. That is the job of the federal government. And so I ran on that as a lieutenant governor that we needed to start weaning ourselves from this federal money and and I it's part of my campaign platform as governor as well that we we need to just be strong and, and just say no it's time to just start saying no to the federal government yep and and that's really I find, find that to be the poisonous fruit uh, they all say look we're gonna lose funding we're gonna lose funding and and that's what scares them um, one other area of dependency I'd like for you to talk about, too, is not just on the government, but on the culture and the big corporate America, that it seems like there's this trend that red states, you know, they tend to have fewer regulations and lower taxes. So it naturally attracts some of these uh, big corporations to, to leave California and states like that and go to a place like Idaho. But then they want to instill their their culture and and enforce it upon the state whether it's the transgenderism whether it's promoting illegal immigration whatever it is where it's promoting uh you know you know pro-criminal elements or, or racism and blm's agenda and they make everyone go along with that agenda and i find a lot of red state republicans are reluctant to stand up and and uh keep the values of their state out of fear of antagonizing those business interests. How would you balance the desire to be, you know, open for business? That way you get more revenue, you're independent of the federal government. But on the other hand, uh, you don't compromise the conservative culture of, of, of a red state like Idaho. Well, Daniel, I am a small business woman myself. And so I'm going to be, I run on um, pro-business policies that all businesses, whether they're large or small, but we all need to be on the same playing field. So, for example, we shouldn't necessarily have special tax incentives just because you're a super corporation. We should have a low tax rate, low regulatory structure for all business in our community. But I think that's what we see often is that these um, laws are created to give special incentives to some of the bigger corporations because they, let's face it, they can, they can afford to hire the lobbyists to come to the Capitol and lobby on their behalf. And so sometimes that's what happens, unfortunately, where these large corporations are given special incentives to operate. But um, we should, we should, no matter what, we should always stand strong that just because a big corporation or an organization like the NCAA threatens to pull out their activities from your state, if you do what you believe is the people of your state are calling for, then we need to be strong and we need to just say, look, thank you, we, we welcome you here, but 
But if you're not going to play by our rules of the game, then, I mean, we're just doing our job to represent the people of our state and the values that, that the people of our state represent. All right, now I'm going to get to the 800-pound gorilla in the room from Idaho. You know, you, you go to a state like that, people feel like, wow, okay, I'm going to be free from the federal tyranny. But people from my part of the country aren't so familiar with this. You look at a map, and more than half of the land in your state is actually owned by the feds. As governor, how do you finally break that stranglehold uh, you know, which is preventing small business owners from even developing the land, using it, you know, engaging in uh, prosperity that you need to remain sovereign from a lot of what's going on. How do you finally deal with that land issue? Well, Daniel, I have a different view of the land issue, and I don't view that the federal government owns the land in Idaho. Uh, my view is that the land of Idaho belongs to the state of Idaho, and that's mm. how the original intent of our Constitution, that's how it was. Now, there was a, a law that came along where Congress tried to seize control of the western land, but my view is that the land within the boundaries of the state of Idaho belong to the state of Idaho, and it's our job as stewards of our, of our land to manage our resources in the best way that we can to protect and preserve them, preserve them for ourselves and for our children. People who live in Idaho love our mountains, our rivers, our lakes, our streams, and uh, people love to get out and ski and hike and climb the mountains. And so it's important for us to preserve that. But we also can be good stewards to, because God has granted us these resources, and we need to be good stewards to manage the resources, preserve them, and do what we can to um, provide prosperity for the people of our state from the resources that we have in our state. So in other words, you're, you're saying, to, you know, you believe that if you guys want to um, use the land in a, in a specific way, you already have that authority, and, and this is just another federal usurpation. Well, the federal government tries to dictate through um, their regulations, federal laws, what we may or may not do in terms of, um, like, grazing or, or timber or mining, agriculture. Um, they place a lot of restrictions on what we, what we may do with the property, but I mean, we can be, we can be good stewards. We can be better stewards of the federal government. A lot of the, lot of the forests that are managed by the U.S. government, they, they allow the, the dead growth to build up and the beetles kill the tree and then it's just ripe for forest fires, just like what's happening in California. Well, we can go in and we can, we can, uh, be good stewards and, and, and glean those forests so that they're healthier but have the use of the timber, you know, with, with wood prices like four times what they were a year ago, we have we have the renewable resource in our state. We just need to be able to access it and manage it better than the federal government does. Now, I know you got to run uh, in a couple minutes, just two brief things. If you could talk to our audience a little bit about what your plans are for education, a lot of people have noticed that 
you know, we've lost our country because we've allowed the left to control the education system, even the taxpayer-funded education system. And yet you go to a state like Idaho, you know, out west, down south, you go to the public schools and the climate, the culture, the curriculum in these schools is not that materially different than where I am in central Maryland. How are you going to change that? Well, yeah, Daniel, we've, this past year has been a real interesting eye-opening experience because an organization started doing some research. Actually, this started even farther back at Boise State University where students and parents were coming forward and, you know, they were doing things at Boise State University. Um, they had what they call the, the tunnel of oppression where you were, had to go through this tunnel and people would yell at you and, and obscenities and challenge you. There were there was a, a coffee shop that was driven off the campus because from, from leaders of Black Lives Matter um, because they were displaying the, blue, the, the flag with the thin blue line owned by a, 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 a law enforcement officer who was shot in Boise and left paralyzed, and he, they were driven off the campus by this. So this, these things started becoming apparent in our state, and, and people were becoming more educated and informed about what was going on in the universities. And as we learned more about these things, things started coming forward about anecdotal evidence in our schools, in our K-12 schools. And so um, in the legislature, there were a number of budgets that were actually shut down. They were voted down for the school funding. And so um, we decided, my office, in my office, I decided to put together a task force to look into this and just investigate study what is happening in Idaho schools because this became apparent this past year. So we put together this task force and just yesterday we put out a press release naming the members on the committee. These are individuals from across the state coming from different paths of life. We have over 40 Idaho citizens that volunteered to sign up and serve on this committee. But yesterday we announced the 15 people, we interviewed all of them, and we're going to have our first meeting next Thursday to begin our examination into this. And the legislature did do a good thing. It said that there was a bill that said our schools could not teach the, the critical race theory, and in the law, it was in actually in quotations, critical race theory. But some of the, the concern that was expressed in the debate of this bill was that critical race theory was not clearly defined in our statute. And so that is perhaps one thing that we that we might seek to accomplish through our task force is to put some definition into our code so that everybody really understands what this is and, and what is or is not being permitted to be taught in our schools. The important thing is uh, that has come out um, recently from the Biden administration was a rule that came out on April the 19th where they are proposing to in implement a lot of these controversial teachings into our primary and secondary school systems, teaching things like the deep, the 
debunked uh, 1619 project and other states, the teachings of uh, Zindi Ibram, a very controversial anti-American philosopher. Anyway, so we're looking at these things and we're going to do our part, what we can do to help define some of this in our state so that everybody knows what it is and what we're talking about. The interesting thing is um, the left, the the liberal, even the, our own Idaho Education Association has kind of come out in attack of our effort. I was subpoenaed by the attorney from the Idaho Education Association to turn over all the records that that we had from people that were contacting my office about this. And we had over 4,000 people submit comments on my website. And so uh, they want to take a look at this and like, okay, well, that's fine. You're going to, you know, they want a public records request. It's probably going to take us a while to get to that. But there's no secrets here. We're not, it's not a witch hunt. We're just trying to, investigate and understand what's happening in our state so that everybody understands and knows what we need to do to deal with it. And and that's obviously very important in that you can't just be a you know negative. Okay, don't teach this. We have to have our own curriculum. These are government funded schools, and it should reflect the character that we believe is correct. The left has no problem uh, pushing it in the direction they want to. I think our side has always been shy about using the power we get um, to do justice and to do what's right, and you know we need a 1776 project that is actually taught in the schools. So do you have a plan to really reorient this? Because again, we're finding, and we found this with COVID and the masking and the quarantining in schools, but it's, it's true of the curriculum as well, that the red state departments of health and departments of education were really indistinguishable from the type of personnel you would have in my home state of Maryland. Well, I think it's interesting to point out and clarify that in my position as lieutenant governor, I have always driven to have an open and honest dialogue with my constituents across the state. My door has always been open, even during the the shutdown last year when the other constitutional officers at the Capitol had their doors locked up. My door was always open and people could walk in and we had weekly capital clarity sessions where hundreds of people would come out every Thursday and online watch what we were doing thousands of people we were just trying to shine the light on what was happening at the Capitol help people have a better understanding of what was being talked about and and then also teach people help them know how to communicate their voice effectively and the interesting thing on this issue is that um, again because I I'm trying to be open and honest have a dialogue we shouldn't be afraid to talk about these things and on my weekly radio program all i did i asked a i asked a senator would you be willing to come on a democrat senator would you be willing to come on to my radio show and let's just talk about this and and his response to me was I will have nothing to do with that. I I don't want to further that discussion in any way. So then I went to the minority leadership and said, will you, is there someone from your caucus that would come on and and come talk to me on the radio? And they, nobody was available. So at a time when I'm trying to facilitate discussion, 
the minority party in my state, which are the Democrats, they just simply don't want to talk about it. And I think that doesn't serve any purpose to the citizens of our state. We need to be able to have dialogue and talk to each other about these things, even if they are controversial subjects. All right. So just one more minute here. I'd be remiss not to ask you about uh, the five counties in eastern Oregon voting to join Idaho. It's not every day when something like this happens. You're running for governor. What do you make of this and what do you think will come of it? Well, I do think it's fascinating. It just came out of just recent that there were five more. I think there's a total of seven now, seven or eight counties, which really comprise when you look most of the state of Oregon, which is so interesting. Well, A, it is constitutional. There is a provision for that um, up until even, I think it was 1958. Well, 1950s, the border changed slightly between Washington and the state of Oregon. So it is constitutional. The way that it works is that both members of the legislative body of Oregon and Idaho would have to agree to it, and then Congress would have to approve it, which, you know, Congress is so dysfunctional right now that probably in itself is a problem, but um, it's an interesting concept, and there's a lot, it says a lot, it says a lot about the similarities between our two states, especially yeah. the rural regions of our state. So anyways, well, hey, Daniel, we, my husband, Jimmy, and I are just pulling up to the Salt Lake City Perfect. airport. Perfect, where could We're people find out more? Where could people find uh, out more yeah. about your candidacy? Thank you. Uh, JaniceforIdaho.com. That's J-A-N-I-C-E-S-O-R-I-D-A-H-O.com. JaniceforIdaho.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Governor, for joining us, and keep us updated. Yeah, thanks a lot, Daniel. You have a great day. God bless. So again, folks, that was JaniceforIdaho.com. Um, look, it's not every day. When a sitting lieutenant governor challenges the governor in the same party for the nomination of governor uh, because they became a fascist. And, you know, Governor Brad Little, he, he was in many respects worse than Larry Hogan here in Maryland. And that's a big problem. People are looking to Idaho to flee. Well, you first have to make Idaho a beacon of freedom. Now, I, I typically don't like to step on people's toes when you have primaries and multiple conservatives running, and I do. I think there are other candidates running, um, but I would say the problem is you do not have a runoff scenario there, so you risk splitting the conservative vote, and I just cannot see the benefit of running someone um, who is an unknown that just doesn't have any name ID versus someone who was just elected statewide as lieutenant governor. So that's that. I mean, you want to find out more there. I mean, I think this really might be, at this point, the most important governor's race. And and governor races in red states are really the most important things. Um, you saw she has a very fierce spirit of independence to push back against the feds. That's what we need. We need to make Idaho's politics actually comport with the public perception of of what Idaho is about. Um but, you know, it, it, it's really not. I mean, again, you go to the Idaho Department of Health, Idaho Department of Education, which controls everything. They're just as bad as anywhere else, and that needs to change. So let me know your thoughts on the Idaho uh, gubernatorial race. Um, there's just a couple, a couple of things to clean up. just want to return to COVID stuff. 
you know, I'm getting emails from people, um, flight attendants. Again, people think the mask mandate is over with. It's not. Most people that have to suffer through it for hours still have to wear it. Those were the worst cases. The workers. Uh, you know, why should someone have to do that? So we do need to work on lawsuits. I, I Another story I'm working on is I'm, I'm getting uh, specifically a, a note from someone in the Coast Guard, but really all branches of the military where they are now going to segregate them based on vaccination. Again, discriminate. This notion that it's not being enforced is not true. They are requiring it. They're requiring vaccines in, in all but name only. Government, private, everything. So this is not over. This is not over by a mile. It really isn't. And to this day, even now that it's easy, that we have all the data, everything is debunked. Everything the other side ever wanted to do on this issue we now have all the talking points. People like myself have done all the heavy lifting. So all these Johnny-come-latelys, all they have to do is just join. But still, do you hear Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy really you know, saying, you know, we need an investigation into our response to COVID fascism? No, we're really not. Do you know how contrived this whole thing is? This is from the UK Daily Mail. UK, no, UK Telegraph. UK Telegraph. If you want to look it up, use of fear to control behavior in COVID crisis was totalitarian, admit scientists. Scientists on a committee that encouraged the use of fear to control people's behavior during the COVID pandemic have admitted its work was unethical and totalitarian. Members of the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Behavior expressed regret about the tactics in a new book about the role of psychology in the government's COVID-19 response. Basically, that um, group they were a part of, that committee, warned in March last year that ministers needed to increase the perceived level of personal threat because a substantial number of people still do not feel sufficiently personally threatened. Gavin Morgan, a uh, psychologist on the team, said clearly using fear as a means of control is not ethical. Using fear smacks of totalitarianism. It's not an ethical stance for any modern government. By nature, I am an optimistic person, but all this has given me a more pessimistic view of people. And they go, it's, it's a long article. They go on to explain this. Ministers have faced repeated accusations that they ramped up the threat from the pandemic to justify lockdowns and coerce the public into abiding by them a claim that will be examined by a forthcoming public inquiry into the pandemic response. So even in, in unfree Britain, they're at least having some sort of commission. Now you might say, well, Daniel, we don't have the votes in Congress. Jim Jordan tried to create some sort of commission. Even his commission was only more on just the origins of it, not our response to it. But again, there's nothing stopping Republican governors from, you know, imagine if you had... 15, 20 Republican governors get together and create a cross-state commission from all different, maybe one person from each state to examine what, what went wrong. And this is something that has to happen on a number of occasions, but again, we need good governors to be able to do this. It would literally create a shadow government. It would make Red America truly Red America. But this is a government-sanctioned committee writing a book, a mea culpa, from Britain. 
You could call psychology mind control. That's what we do. Clearly, we try and go about it in a positive way, but it has been used nefariously in the past. One warned that people use the pandemic to grab power and drive through things that wouldn't happen otherwise. We would have to be very careful, careful about the authoritarianism that is creeping in. This is British folks, British psychologists, bureaucrats admitting this. And yet we can't get red state politicians to take action on this. Without a vaccine, another said, psychology is your main weapon. Psychology has had a really good epidemic. Actually. This was all a lie, the notion that government could control an epidemic by controlling you. Again, UK Telegraph use of fear to control behavior in COVID crisis was totalitarian. If you want to look it up, it is a subscription article, um, but you might be able to finagle a, a, a free one there if you want to read the whole thing. Um, so that's where we are. Now, there is good news. Again, and I'm just rolling here just to cap out the week. A lot of quick stories. Um, Larvita McFarker tells me in Minnesota, it looks like they will drop charges against her you know, for opening up her business, which again, you know, cause they were going to have discovery. They, her defense was going to call the epidemiologist to the stand. They don't want that. They don't want that. They don't want an inquiry into what went wrong, which is exactly why we should want it. And we need it. They want to just like passively drop it. albeit still control us with the vaccine and then, again, it's not dropped because they could bring it out at any time. So we have that. There's also just a lot of other COVID-related news that I'm working on. A British professor of pediatrics, Dr. Finn, a member of the UK Committee on Vaccination. UK Committee on Vaccination. Again, another government bureaucrat type of guy in the UK. Now opposes vaccinating kids because of the side effects which outweigh the fact that children are, quote, very, very rarely seriously affected by this infection. He was previously supportive of it. Um, but now he's changed his mind. Again, you find this in the UK, but not in America. And this is happening in red states. Then we have the story out of Colorado. A school bus driver smacked a little girl across the face for not wearing a mask properly in his mind. He should get the death penalty. He was released on bail. Police in New Hampshire. This from the union leader. Police arrest unmasked attendee as maskless group shows up at Timberlane school meeting in New Hampshire. This is still happening. People being arrested for not wearing a mask at a school board meeting. Um, where is this? Again, it's this subscription. Tempers flared at Thursday night's Timberlane Regional School Board meeting after a Sunday school teacher was arrested moments after she and several other unmasked attendees showed up to demand an end to the school mask mandate. Um, they basically just ended it and then bullied everyone else into leaving and then sent the police on them. These police are real trash ones doing this. I'm sorry. This is really, really disgusting. 
really disgusting, and it's got to stop. So this is where we are with that. It's still continuing. We still need the fight. Um, another interesting thing I just wanted to show you guys on masking. This is unbelievable, and it just it's emblematic of the censorship that's going on. Um, so basically, there's a new study published in Science today that they show up front that they actually have a randomized controlled trial that's shown masks provide little to no benefit for respiratory viruses. Okay? Their, their language is inconsistent or inconclusive results. So they admit it. They admit that is the story. But then they proceed to a model of how masks work. So the scientific evidence they should say doesn't work, but then they create a mathematical model assuming masks work, how effective it would be. This is how all these studies are done. So, um, um, and, and they make it up. They say observational data show that regions or facilities with a higher percentage of the population wearing masks have better control. They completely made that up. They make you think there's like some sort of study or something. They made it up. So they say that randomized controlled trials, which is the gold standard, show nothing. But we have some observational data showing they work. And what they basically did is they, I think what they cite is observational data from New York City and Italy after their initial wave, then they started wearing masks and then it dropped. But then it came, but what they don't cite is that it came back again and again in all these places. The stuff they cite was like published like in May or something of last year. Before the second and third waves. That, that, that was when Reuters was writing an article saying, hey, you know, we think that Masking is going to avoid another wave, but it didn't. So now we now know that the eight-week spreads and then the drop is like clockwork. It does that everywhere. That's the level of dishonesty in medical literature, scientific literature. But again, folks, what this all demonstrates the genocidal public health science, the lying, the control, and they admit it, it's out in the open on things that relate to the you know, health of, 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 a, of a child and experimenting with masks and vaccines and then the criminal stuff we're seeing, the illegal alien stuff. You cannot live harmoniously with these people. And this is why I love the greater Idaho idea. You know, obviously, the lieutenant governor was saying you're going to need Congress to sign off. I'd say screw it. Do it anyway. They do what they want anyway. That's what we're going to have to do. But first, you need the states themselves to be red. And then you could start having the red areas of blue states join. But right now, we have a governor and an entire executive branch and a state senate in Idaho that is, may as well be Maryland. So that's, that's where we are with that. 
But anyone who had a lick of, of, of intellectual honesty, whether you're liberal or conservative, should realize we have reached a point in the country that the only way to live harmoniously is to have very strong states that are divided more along the lines of where things are today, not where, you know, arbitrary boundaries that it used to be. Because it's not really a state-by-state state thing, it's a county-by-county county thing. And the reality is that there is no reason why 80% of the landmass of Oregon, which is conservative, needs to be under the control of Antifa. But this is why the gubernatorial primaries, you cannot imagine, that's where it all starts. You get 15 Ron DeSantis's, which if, if we actually engaged in the primaries just within the red states this year, we could achieve that. Google which ones are in cycle for 2022, and you'll see what I mean. All the red states, their governorships are up. You could create a resistance a million times more powerful than phony Republicans winning back Congress by slim margins. That is where the fight's at. We're going to be going through some of these governor's races as we can. Let me know your thoughts on your state. Again, sign up for your conaction.network. Um, uh, Liberty Strike Force team, as always, send this show to 50 of your friends and relatives. Let me know what you think. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. Have a terrific weekend. God bless you all. I can't wait to see you back here Monday. Thank you.